Well, what a, what a glorious chapter we have just read. 2 Kings 11. I think, I think Pastor McNeil, he said, is that your favorite chap, one of your favorite chapters at least to read with the family? It's glorious in the drama of it. I mean, you can't ask for a better story, right? And it's glorious in the victory of good over evil. What can we say about this chapter, about Athaliah? Uh, you, you can't ask for, a, for just a better, or maybe, what would you say, a worse uh, enemy. My son Tate judges books on the basis of the bad guy. They have to have a good bad guy. Isn't that right? Isn't that how you put it? A good bad guy? Right. This chapter has a good bad guy. Athaliah is even more than Jezebel because the story is so short, right? And because her wickedness is so intense and so quick. Athaliah just stands out in Scripture as this terrible, terrible, wicked queen mother uh, who has none of what you hope for and, and require in a woman. It's one thing to have a king that is brutal and uh, wants to secure his power and eliminate all his enemies. And so he's murderous. It's another thing entirely to have a woman who is that way because it goes so much against the character of how God made woman to be and to do. If we miss the fact that part of the reason that Athaliah is such a good bad guy is because she's a woman acting this way, then we have fallen prey to the error of our day that denies any difference between men and women. And I say fallen prey to it because it's not intentional in this case, if, if, if you don't notice it, right? We, we all deny the error of our day that, that says men and women are the same, and, um, and yet we can still have the seed of it in us. We can still have that error growing and infiltrating and seeping in ways that we miss, right? And so you shouldn't be uncomfortable for me to say, part of what we're seeing here is a queen, not a king. And because we're seeing a queen, part of what's happening is all the worse, making her all the more terrible as a character in this story. Now, of course, we also can't forget that last chapter, two chapters, we've been dealing with Jehu, who was also killing a lot of people who would have been competitors for the throne in Israel instead of Judah, right? And so part of what's going on is we're seeing 
something that you could consider similarity. So, so you, might, you might also hear me saying, this is a queen and she's not supposed to be this way and think, oh yeah, well you were defending Jehu last week. So men are allowed to be murderous rampagers, but women aren't. Great. But of course, that's not what I'm saying. What we're seeing is not just some similarity between Jehu and Athaliah, but we're seeing a contrast between Jehu and Athaliah. And the contrast is not just that one is a man and a woman, like I've already pointed out, but the contrast is that one is seeking to obey the Lord and the other is seeking to undo the Lord's promise. Athaliah is seeking to undo what God has said, and, and Jehu is seeking to establish what God has said. And that's the contrast between them. Athaliah is very close to successful in breaking the line of David. Think about that. Breaking the line of David. This is the, the line that God established and promised to David that they would sit on the throne and that that line, he would establish a house for David and that David's descendant would sit on the throne forever. And so when you come to the New Testament and you read about the birth of Jesus, what you read about is the fact that he was descended from Abraham, because that's where the promise was given, that it would be your descendant first. And then that he descended from David. This is why Jesus was born in the city of David, because that line was being established by God. Athaliah. Athaliah is seeking to break that line, to cut that line so that there is no more the line of David for the throne. Now, if Athaliah had succeeded in killing uh, Joash, all of a sudden I was trying to, th- for some reason I always get Josiah and Joash confused. <clears throat> uh, hey Moses, could you give me some water please? My voice just got funny. <clears throat> Thank you. <sir. clears throat> Excuse me. So jo- if, if she had succeeded in killing Joash, <clears throat> God still would have brought about the birth of his son. No enemy can contravene God's promises and undo them and break them. Okay? There were others that would have been of the descendants of David, right? When, when, the, when the people of God go into exile, Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, there's no more king on the throne there, God's promise isn't broken, right? 
the line continues. And so the line would have continued here, but I want you to see that that's her goal. I want you to see that that's what's at stake. The main commentary that I read uh, as I prepare my sermons in Kings is by a man named Dale Ralph Davis, and he titled this chapter, The Woman Who Saved Christmas. Because when you break the line, that's the line of David. That's where the Messiah will, that's the line that the Messiah will be born out of. And so, <clears throat> yes, this, this woman, Jehoshaphat, who we, we never hear of before or after this, right? She saves Joash, and it is through that line that the Messiah is born. And so it's, it's correct to call her the woman who saved Christmas. But I, but, I, but I started by saying God would still have accomplished his plan of salvation because no enemy can undo it. <clears throat> because I don't want us uh, to somehow think that, uh, that God couldn't do whatever he needed. Whatever he needed. But in this case, he chose to do it this way. He chose to save the line right here, right now. And what would it have looked like if generations into the line of David, all of a sudden, <clears throat> you've got to back up six generations to another descendant? Because that's what's at stake. I don't know how many generations you'd have to go back to find another descendant of David, but it's like, well, is the, is the kingdom of David established or isn't it? So let's go back through this chapter briefly. I just want to make sure to explain a few things in here that may have been confusing to you. The first is, Jehoshaphat uh, was the wife of a priest. And so part of what's going on in this chapter is you're seeing the, uh, the work of the priest Jehoiada. <clears throat> and he's, he's having to step in after the child is saved and plan how to get this, this infant boy on the throne eventually. First, it's how to keep him safe. Then it's how to get him on the throne. And so, uh, Jehoiada is a man of many talents, apparently. A priest planning a coup, a righteous coup. A priest planning military strategy. So if you come to uh, the description of that military strategy, um, starting in verse 5, splits them into thirds and 
breaking them up with their duties and so forth. It can be a little bit confusing, and the translation of this can be a little bit confusing. I, th I think the best way to understand what's going on here, though, is that the, the group of soldiers that were committed to this plan and that had uh, covenanted to keep it secret and to keep him safe, okay, they weren't all on duty all the time. One third of them was on duty, and then that third was split into thirds with three different duties. Okay, so just if you reread it and you're confused about what's going on there, that's probably the best way to understand what he's doing. Uh, those who go out on the Sabbath being those who are going off duty. Um, so two weeks on, uh, two weeks off, one week on, and then they're split. The, when your week is on, there's particular duties that you're split among. <clears throat> That's the first thing I wanted you uh, to be able to understand that could be a little bit confusing in here. Um, the second thing is I want to draw your attention to, let me see here, verse... Where does it say? 13? No, 14. <clears throat> no, 12. There it is. Then he brought the king's son out and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. What, what is the testimony? Do any of you kids have a, any idea what that's talking about? Gave him the testimony? No? Any adults? Oh, I got a kid. Go ahead. You're still, uh, you're a youth, a youth. Go ahead, what is it? It might be the law. It sounds like it's related to testament, so it might be the law. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. Nailed it. Uh, a copy of the testimony was placed in the ark, and so uh, that's what this seems to be referring to. The, the testimony would have been what was given by the Lord to the people back in the time of Moses when the ark uh, when they were still placing things in the ark, right? <clears throat> and so it is, um, it's important because what it shows is from the beginning of his claim to the throne, because the next thing that happens is, where was I, verse 12? Yeah. They made him king and anointed him From the very beginning of his kingship, it's tied to the commands of God. Establishing God's testimony on earth. That was the work of the king. So that was the other thing I wanted to uh, explain right away here at the beginning that could be easy for us to miss. Now having said those two things, there's three things that I want to take note of in this chapter. Did you notice how many times the house of the Lord was mentioned as Paul was reading? The house of the Lord is one of the uh, phrases that repeats over and over in this 
chapter. Now, if you're reading Scripture and a word or phrase begins to repeat, you ought to pay attention. You ought to notice it, okay? And that's part of what it means to dwell on what you're reading, to be paying attention to what you're reading. If you're reading uh, a novel and you've been taught how to read, one of the things that you'll look for is repeating words or ideas or phrases, right? So like if the color blue starts coming up a lot, you're supposed to, you're supposed to wonder and think about what the author was trying to do with the color blue. And of course, the answer to that is, who knows? Generally speaking, in my opinion, with regard to novels. But thankfully, God's word seems to be a little bit clearer to me. So, the word, I mean, the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord hasn't been mentioned at all. The temple hasn't been mentioned at all since 1 Kings 14. And, and that was just one brief mention. It really hasn't been discussed at all since Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 7. I think it may maybe in, in chapter 8 too, I can't remember. But that's when that's the last time you see any repetition of the house of the Lord. Now all of a sudden the house of the Lord comes in. And in one short chapter for, for 2 Kings, because you notice how quick this chapter went by compared to last week. In one short chapter, you have nine repetitions of the house of the Lord. So we're going to talk about that. Second thing that I want you to take note of is how the Lord preserves his covenant kingdom. How the Lord preserves his covenant kingdom. Or more particularly, even more specifically, that he does. Not how he does as much as that he does. And the third thing is that Joash is a wonderful, wonderful picture of Christ. So we're going to go through those three things quickly in reverse order. Joash as a picture of Christ is the first thing that I want us to talk about. Do any of you kids know what we call it, what we call someone who is a picture of Christ, who, who has things that remind us of Christ back in the Old Testament? What are they called? There's just another word for picture that's a little bit more specific. Any of you kids know? I've got tough questions today, I tell you what. What is the testimony? What is another word for picture of Christ? The word is type. Joash is a type of Christ. Okay? That's, what, that's the way we talk uh, about men who came before and who had characteristics and, and, meant to sh and were meant to show us in various ways what Christ was going to be like. So 
So one of the things that happens in the Old Testament is you've got prophecies. Prophecies about the Messiah, but they're also about something that's sooner than the Messiah. So when Isaiah says uh, that there's going to be a king on the throne, and, and you know, and he's he's talking about the Messiah, but he's also he's also talking about someone who's about to be king now. So that king is a type of Christ, the king that is to come. And that's what we're seeing with Joash. Joash is a type of Christ. And if you begin to look at Joash and think about just in this chapter, what we've read about him, you can see tons of things that show us who Jesus is. Tons of things that prefigure for us, that show us ahead of time what the Messiah will be like. Now, of course, one of the things about types that we always have to remember is that they are not Christ. That was obvious, right? They're a type of Christ. They're a precursor picture of Christ. Um, so they are not the Christ. But the reason that uh, that's important for us to remember is because although we don't read about it in this passage, or even in 2 Kings at all, if you go and you read about Joash in Chronicles, as glorious as this chapter is about him, that's how atrocious the end of his life is that's recorded for us in Chronicles. As, as glorious as this is, is atrocious the end of his life. And, and as, and as uh, victorious as this is, the end of his life is total and utter failure. Now that's not recorded for us in Kings. So actually, we're not going to focus on it. Um, it reveals for us a little bit of what the author of Kings is driving at and trying to get us to see that the author of Kings doesn't bother recording that. And so one of the things that he's trying to emphasize for us that God has inspired is the many ways that this particular king is a type of Christ. So let's just think about it for a little bit. And you kids are going to have to do some work here. Okay? We read the story of Joash. <clears throat> and, I, and I want you to think the story of Christ, the story of Jesus, it starts... Like Luke 2, right? You, you guys remember Luke 2? All right. Now, I'm going to give you a couple minutes to think about similarities between those two stories. Maybe things that happen. Can you think of any similarities between the story of Joash that we just read and the story of of Jesus Christ, or just of those two men. 
Okay, you're all thinking about it, right? Don't get too complicated now. There's some really simple, really easy ones. Okay. Who's ready to, who's ready to answer? Similarities. If you find, think of any similarities. Ooh, the McNeely family's all got similarities. None other, nobody else? Okay, go ahead. Wit. Joash and Jesus both had to hide from a ruler. Ding, ding, ding. Yes, take. Both have a large amount of soldiers. Oh, oh, angels proclaiming. Yeah, soldier. Angel soldiers in one case, but soldiers proclaiming his kingship. Okay, yeah. What else? Get some other ideas over here. No, you all put your hands down now? Tate took yours? Oh, they all had the same one. Okay. Okay, well, you you missed the most obvious one. Go ahead, you got one? They're both kings. That is probably the most obvious one. Yes, they are both kings. That's important. That's That's why Joash is a type of Christ, because Christ is king. Oh, you know, there's another really obvious one, not quite as obvious as that. Similarity, they're both born as babies. Now, can, can we really say that's a type of Christ? Well, we, we have to, uh, we have to because... It's remarkable not that Joash was a baby, but that Jesus was a baby, right? Isn't it remarkable that Jesus was born as a baby? And yet that's what we see here. And as a baby, he is vulnerable. And so the rulers of this world are seeking to end his rule by killing him. And it seems hopeless. When you've got Herod sending soldiers to kill all of the infant boys in an entire area, and he's the only one who escapes, and it happens to be the king. When you've got Athaliah seeking to kill all of the sons of the king, but one, one escapes. And so, the king starts as an infant and is not powerful, is vulnerable. King starts with the rulers of this world seeking to kill him, as Whit pointed out. But God preserves him. But God preserves him. Okay, now, This one's a little bit trickier. But if you fast forward in the story of Jesus, while he's still a kid, what other stories do you remember about Jesus that you see similarities here? Is there anything else about when Jesus was still a kid? Yeah. He stays in the temple. Ooh, that's the one I was looking for. 
Ding, ding, ding. He stays in the temple. Now, Jesus, you remember the story when Jesus was still a young man and his parents can't find him? Where do they find him? Yeah? In the temple. That's exactly right. They find him in the temple. He comes out of the house of the Lord. And so we see a similarity there. And it is important because Joash and the, 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 uh, the centrality of that, that uh, phrase being repeated, which we're going to come to later, okay, uh, shows how, how central the house of the Lord is in his rule and what he's seeking to accomplish. And so when Jesus says to his parents, well, didn't you know I had to be here? One of the reasons is because Joash came out of there. He's a type of Christ, even in these, in these little ways. Some other ways is, are that <clears throat> he reestablishes the covenant that's a very important event in our text in verses 17 and 18. And what we see there is the covenant reestablished where the people determined to be the Lord's people and God to be their God. <clears throat> and the result being that they destroyed the temple of Baal. Now, Jesus never destroys a temple of Baal, right? Jesus never destroys a temple of Baal. In the story of Jesus, you read the New Testament, there's no temple of Baal. But, think about this for a minute. What does get destroyed by Jesus establishing his covenant with his people. What does get destroyed? Oh, go ahead. Tom's whispering, so I know he's got an answer. What's that? Yeah, the, the, the veil is torn, and then, the, uh, <clears throat> and then we see, ultimately, the destruction of the temple. So, where are you going with that, Tom? In terms of similarity. <clears throat> you see anything? Okay, I, I'm, I'm struggling with that. It's true. But when I, when I think of the establishment of the covenant that Joash does here, and the result being that the people go and tear down the temple of Baal. <clears throat> what I'm thinking is, okay, what happens when Christ becomes king in our lives? What happens when Christ becomes king in our lives is that we no longer have worship 
of other gods in our lives. You can only have one God. And as the, the rule of jo Joash is established in the land, God and the worship of God is established. And so, the temple of Baal is destroyed. The temple of Baal is destroyed. In our lives, as Christ becomes king, what happens is that all other gods are destroyed in our hearts. There is no more room for any worship of another. And so we see Joash being a type of Christ. Now there's a couple of other very important things here. First, God places his enemies under his feet. God places his enemies under his feet. Joash is victorious over Athaliah. Is it because of something great that Joash does? No. Joash is still little. No, God is the one who places his enemies under his feet. And God has promised to do the same for Christ. And finally, going along with him being a king in the first place, he rules. He rules. And he rules according to the will of God, according to God's word, according to God's commands, according to his promises. So, Joash is a wonderful picture a wonderful type of Christ for us to study and for us to not the thing about the thing about a type of Christ is that <clears throat> it's all there but it's not all clear to us until we see the Christ it's not all clear to us until we see the Christ and in fact Jesus while he was on the road to Emmaus, had to point out all kinds of things in the Old Testament and say, this is how it pertained to me, this is how it pertains to the Christ, right? The whole Old Testament has these, these kinds of pictures, these things that had to do with him. And so we ought to read the Old Testament with eyes that are open to thinking about, okay, uh, how do we see Christ in this? And then, not just make these connections that I just did, but glorify our Father in heaven for what he has done. Because sometimes it's helpful for us to read about Joash and realize, oh, yeah, the line was almost at an end. It seemed hopeless that the Messiah would ever come, that a king would ever be established. And yet, God did it, didn't he? And he did it with Christ too, didn't he? In fact, he did it much more so. That's a beautiful thing for us to dwell on and to remember because it causes us 
to rejoice in Christ as we see the types of him in the Old Testament. Now, the second thing is that uh, as I said before, the Lord preserves his covenant kingdom. The enemies of God might often look like they have won. And it sure looks like Athaliah has won here. To everybody. To Athaliah. To all of those soldiers. To all of the people of Jerusalem. There's Jehoshaphat and Joash's nurse and Jehoiada that know the king is alive until it's revealed further, right? And how many years go by with nobody having any idea that the line hasn't been ended, that it hasn't been destroyed? It goes on and on. But the Lord preserves his covenant kingdom. Do you believe that for today? If Joash is a type of Christ, can we look to today and think it's hopeless? No, we can't. Because we see that God keeps his promises. We see that God won't allow the covenant to fail, to come to an end. His kingdom will be established, and it'll be established for all eternity. We just get a little picture of it here. Joash's kingdom isn't established for all eternity, right? As a matter of fact, Joash ends badly. But what we see is the Lord being at work here. And so, you might listen to the news and you might listen to uh, people who are filled with doom and hopelessness. You might listen to your heart being filled with faithless hopeless expectations for the future. And there is plenty of evil in this world. Athaliah is not where it ends. As a matter of fact, um, Dale Ralph Davis had a great quote about this. He said, "Everybody, everybody who paid attention to and understood prophecy at this time in history, knew how Antichrist was spelled. A-T-H-A-L-I-A-H. Athaliah. Antichrist. What he's saying is, Athaliah is attacking the kingdom of God. Athaliah is attacking the promises 
of God. Athaliah is seeking to undo, as I said, the covenant of God. And yet, though it looks like she has won, the line is broken. There are none left. In point of fact, there are God's promises standing firm. Right? Standing firm. And so when you look to the future and you think it's hopeless, and you're tempted to think that there is no cause for us to have any expectations of good, of the gospel being successful. All right? Remember Joash and Athaliah. And think about if you had been one of the people who weren't in on the secret. Very tempting to be hopeless at that point, right? But God makes his word stand forever. The last thing that we want to talk about this morning is this reality of the house of the Lord. How many times that's mentioned. Joash is the true king, right? Joash is the true king. Why would you say Joash is the true king? What makes Joash the true king and Athaliah the false queen? Any of you kids know? Yeah. Yeah, Joash was from the line of David and Athaliah wasn't. And also was a queen. There's supposed to be a king on the throne, right? Not a queen on the throne. But there's another element to it. Yes, Joash is the true king because he is of the line of David. But it's, there's, an, there's this other wonderful element that we see in this. And it's because, like David, he is of the house of the Lord. Joash is the true king because of who he is coming out of the house of the Lord is part of who he is. In the question of the dependence or independence of church and state, it could be easy to think that this passage demonstrates the power of the church to appoint kings. Right? I mean, got the priest saying, no, here's, here's the current king, here's the new king. And it's the, the priest who uh, protects him. It's the, it's the priest who sets up the coup. But in point of fact, what it actually demonstrates is an example of the reform of a nation starting in the church. The reform of the nation starts in the house of the Lord. It doesn't start in the realm of politics. It starts in the realm of a woman who thinks, no, you're not going to kill this one. 
You're not going to kill this one. Just that simple act of hiding this infant along with his nurse. What is that? That is a normal person like you, like me, raising up the next generation of the people of God. Protecting them from harm. Teaching them who they are. And so what I want you to realize coming out of this is that the Lord has chosen to use faithful people in the house of the Lord, in his church, to preserve his covenant kingdom. The Lord has chosen to use normal people doing simple, faithful things to raise up the next generation. And that is how the covenant is preserved down through the ages. It's such a strange thing for us to see it so vividly with Joash, where the line itself seems like it's at stake, at risk of ending, right? And it's this, and it's this baby. And either the kingship will go on and be established, or it won't. What does the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ look like for it to be established? There has to be a people that he's king over. He has to have people who worship him, right? Now, if the people come to an end, the kingdom comes to an end. We know King Jesus isn't going to come to an end, right? But we also know he will not allow his kingdom to come to an end. The gates of hell will not prevail against her. That's the glorious promise that we're seeing here. Now you might think, oh, but Athaliah, Athaliah is the one on attack, right? Athaliah is the one who is offensive. And Joash is having to be protected and defended. And that's true for a time. But in the end, Joash's kingdom is established and the gates of hell don't stand against it. Athaliah is executed. And that's the end of that kingdom. That's the end of that kingdom. 
And so who's on offense and who's on defense here? Now, today, it might seem like we, the church, are on defense. And of course, there are always antichrists attacking. And you must have a shield to put out the fiery darts that the enemy sends, right? God has given us that shield. Praise God. But beyond that, we must remember the king is truly alive and his enemies will perish in the end, just as Athaliah perishes. And so we are not a people who run and hide. We are a people who protect the kingdom of God and push it forward in really simple, obvious, physical ways, like having children and teaching them who they are and who their king is and what kingdom they're a part of and what it means to have him as a king. You can't ask for a better job for the church of Jesus Christ than to carry on his kingdom. Can you? Can you think of anything more glorious than building the kingdom of God? Strengthening it, establishing it from generation to generation until it is what it was meant to be at the beginning, built up in the perfect, on that perfect cornerstone, until we are finally perfected. You've all been given gifts for the establishing of the kingdom of God. God is the one establishing it. But what does he use in this story? The house of the Lord. And that's what we are. And over and over and over again, down through the ages, you read stories of how God has established his kingdom through the work of reformation that starts in the house of the Lord. That's where the change begins, and that's how he has accomplished it. And you know what? So often, it's women. It's women who do it. It's two women in this story, Jehoshaphat and the nurse, right? And it's Joash that comes out of it. And he establishes his kingdom. Or what about when, uh, <clears throat> when um, Monica is teaching and praying for Augustine? And what comes out of it? Augustine, fighting for God's truth, right? Time and time and time again, we see this happen. 
And it just seems like, well, all I did was what seemed like obvious, necessary to do, save the baby. Well, yeah. <laughs> that is the glorious work that God uses. Our faithful, simple obedience in these kinds of things to build his kingdom generation by generation. So don't think that you can't do the work that Jehoshaphat did. You're building the kingdom of God by raising up the next generation, making sure they survive, and making sure they know who the enemy is. So that when the time comes, they will attack. Because the church will prevail on the offense against the gates of hell. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful, joyful gift it is to receive this promise in picture form. To be reminded that you establish your son on the throne. And that no matter what happens and no matter who comes and no matter what the attack looks like, his kingdom is secure. That throne will not be cast down. And his enemies will be on their knees before his throne. Either as subjects or to be crushed into dust. Father, we thank you that Athaliah was not victorious. That she was crushed in the end and that in the beginning where it looked like where she thought, where everybody thought that she had been victorious. Father, you, in your marvelous wisdom and in your great mercy, had raised up that simple woman, Jehoshaphat, to save the life of that one child that she could save. And Father, we thank you that he was raised in the house of the Lord. May we have such a commitment to building your kingdom through this.